Women are not quite the same. This has been a development in the making for decades. A recent study found actually that the least happy people in the United States are 42-year-old unmarried professional women with no children. In the general population, depression and anxiety, as well as suicide and deaths of despair, are on a steep rise. And all of this is in the midst of economic prosperity. The question is why and how to fix it. So welcome to the Coffee House. This is the Anti-Mary Exposed, Rescuing the Culture from Toxic Femininity by Carrie Guess, PhD. And the book offers a diagnosis and a cure. It was published in March of 2019. So, as always, we will go through the contents of the book, we'll do a brief analysis, and then we'll get into some big-picture thinking on it. And then some housekeeping here. We will be doing the book itself on Tuesdays, we'll do a discussion on Thursdays, and then we're going to have an article coming out on the weekend, just as a kind of nice chaser. I was going to do it on Fridays, but it seems like nobody's interested in anything on Fridays, so <laughs> I think I'm just going to do it on a Saturday. A nice wake-up-to kind of thing. But that said, here are the contents of this particular book, The Anti-Mary Exposed. And this was a very short book, but there was very little I felt like I could actually cut out without you getting the actual feel for what this book was about. So I apologize for <laughs> like describing the whole book to you. We started out discussing that culture has been promoting homosexuality and promiscuity and eroticism to undermine family and destroy the patriarchy. It has been a strategy of the women's liberation movement, kind of the mutated version of the women's liberation movement. In addition to this, you've had second wave feminism that made it clear that children are specifically the enemy. And in the midst of all this, you have like the Cosmo Woman, when, when that came out, was becoming really popular. And the Cosmo Woman specifically could be anything except a virgin or a mother. Those were the categories that were excluded when designing the modern Cosmo Woman. So thus, abortion became a necessity. You have 3,000 daily abortions, and it's the highest cause of death. But women traded the history of what womanhood was for an Epicurean paganism that chased what feels good, and instead of being pro-life, it became pro-lifestyle. So the question was, are there forces behind it? And does the rise in witchcraft <laughs> have something to do with it, apparently? Then we go into how Mary is being erased. Of course, this is the Virgin Mary, Mother of Jesus, and the book is structured around this idea of Mary. You have the Antichrist, so you can also have the Anti-Mary, and the author goes into this religious analysis and says that Mary, the Virgin Mary, was kind of a reversal of the curse on women, or reversed the curse on women. So the disobedience of one virgin was balanced out by the obedience of another virgin, and Mary became the new Eve. And this, you'll see a lot in the New Testament, where it will take the motifs from the Hebrew Bible and modify them or flip them over. But it is, I mean, it's kind of an interesting exegetical idea <laughs> to see this, this kind of a reflection. And there's also this interesting idea as a woman as the weaver of the fabric of society and mother just in general being vital. Today, apparently, people spend 50% less time with their children than they used to. And that it's no accident, says the author, that we are witnessing unprecedented emotional and mental trauma in an era when motherhood itself is devalued and rejected. 
Historically, of course, the Virgin Mother was revered, especially in Catholicism. And would you contrast, this is me speaking, when you contrast that with how Protestantism treats a lot of the icons of Catholicism, of course, Protestantism is concerned about those becoming idols, which you can't worship. <laughs> so in Catholicism, though, you have a bunch of saints, and the Virgin Mother Mary is a huge figure in Catholicism. Who are women today? One thing is you can't point out faults in women. It's seen as misogynist. <laughs> But you can in men. You certainly can in men. Women have natural vulnerabilities, though. They have physical vulnerabilities, and they are incapacitated when they are giving birth. So these are something that they have to take into account and has to be part of their strategy for getting through all of life's lovely situations. And women, not just in the physical realm, but when it comes to their psychological inclinations, women want to conceal open competition. And this is something that was actually discussed, I think, in The Coddling of the American Mind, where they talked about how there's a difference between, or no, was it, it might have been irreversible damage, but where it talked about there's a difference between the way that men have conflicts and the way that women have conflicts. So men, just in general, have live conflicts, they get into fights, they throw fists, knock each other around a bit, and then once they split and go their separate ways, they don't have to worry about that conflict anymore because that's where the conflict was. Whereas women have a different kind of conflict. On social media, their conflicts can extend throughout the entire day. So you have to imagine that if a man had a kind of social media where every time he opened Twitter or something like that, a fist could come out and start punching him in the face, then that's the kind of thing that a woman is experiencing when she she's having that conflict perpetually. So you could understand why there would be psychological ramifications to that. It also explains this trend where you see words being referenced as violence, being termed violence, and having this false equivalence. I wonder if that has something to do with it too. But anyway, so women, when they get into conflicts, they have different kinds of conflicts because they can't necessarily physically fight. You know, everybody's not Gwendolyn Christie. So they have to use different strategies like backstabbing, like manipulation. <laughs> and those are the ways that they have their conflicts in their groups. They also work on an egalitarian model as opposed to a hierarchical model. One girl can't be seen in the group as superior to the other ones. If she is, she has to be brought down. Women are apparently also less likely to support subordinates because they're worried about that subordinate becoming a threat, whereas men are more likely to try to use a subordinate to accomplish something else. And there are fairy tales historically, like Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales, which we read, by the way, of women looking too far because of discontent. You know, they feel discontented, so they try to look too far to find something else, and they end up finding destruction. And that's built into a lot of the fairy tales in history. And they tell men, men, even though we want to be just like you, you must change, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Of course, that's one of the weirdest situations related to men and women in this country specifically, and in just modern Western traditions and thought, is that the point was that women and men were supposed to be exactly the same, and they can accomplish the same things, so you just let us in and we'll be able to do the same things that you do. But also men are absolutely horrible and engage in toxic masculinity. So they have to change their ways dramatically. So those things just don't comport, obviously. And then there's this general attack, of course, everybody's seen this, of the idea of the stay-at-home mom. This is something that is derided nowadays. And a member of Congress recently, Kirsten Cinema, is one of those who derides this idea. Then we get into some witchcraft talk that apparently there are 1.5 million witches in the United States. I actually met one. She was strange and sent me an email from one of her gurus. I mean, a nice person, sure, but <laughs> I did not know. I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. There would definitely be a flayed rabbit at the end of that one. So apparently there are more witches than Presbyterians in the United States concerning. 
But the big idea was that people who, the women who fetishize witchcraft and paganism, they have this idea that you can't have a masculine god, that there's a problem with that, and lesbianism itself is an ideal. Now, for me, this seems like it's an overstated principle. <laughs> you just wonder how all the basic kind of liberal professional women fit in this rubric when it comes to accepting a lot of these ideas that are talked about, even these very extreme ideas, while not going the route of paganism or <laughs> witchcraft. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, there's a lot of broad strokes being done here, but so much of this actually really does apply to just the psychological and philosophical situation that we're in. But there's this, uh, a lot of them like to pretend there was just some ancient matriarchal paradise that we're trying to get back to, and there's this idea that truth and logic are the enemy. We see this, and that's what's so crazy about is that you literally see this isn't an overstatement you literally see this stated that truth and logic are the enemy that these are a problem there was i just saw there was this mathematical kind of woke mathematical guide that was talking about how driving for the right answer is a kind of patriarchy or white supremacy that trying to get the right answer to a mathematical problem is a problem in itself that you're engaging in something that's anti-woman or racist or something like that if you're trying to get the right answer so truth and logic are the enemy. Then we go into this big discussion. This was awesome about Lilith, who is a hero of a lot of these these feminists. Lilith was the wife of Satan. Apparently, she's been called a blood-sucking night demon. Uh, I might have dated her at one point. Uh, James Joyce called her the patroness of abortion. The term lullaby actually comes from the Arabic for beware of Lilith. I had no idea that this was the case. I'm sure a bunch of people are like, oh, I already knew that. I knew that all the time. Uh, but I did not know that was the case, that lullaby comes from that. Beware of Lilith. <laughs> She's depicted as an owl, which is kind of awesome, or a woman with owls. And there's this book, The Alphabet of Ben Sira, uh, that was written around the 8th to 10th century. And it sought to reconcile Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the creation stories in, in those two books. And so it told the story of Lilith being the other person created, but she was created at the same time as Adam. And they fought for supremacy. <laughs> you know, it wasn't clear that he was the superior one or whatever, or had the position of hierarchical supremacy. So she fought for supremacy. And when she couldn't get it, she stomped out of the garden and issued a bunch of blasphemies and, and was banished eventually from the garden. And then as punishment, a hundred of her children were to be killed each day. And then she gained her revenge by seducing men and killing infants that weren't being protected. Then there's this talk of the Whore of Babylon from Revelation 17, 2-6. Apparently, this is what was quoted in the in the work. But the author talks about how this is such a familiar person now in hookup culture that this is just something that we kind of see. This is from the text, Revelation. Quote, With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And then a later verse, A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. End quote. <laughs> So the Bab the whore of Babylon, apparently. Of course, she called herself, it looks like her label was Babylon the Great. Um, so I don't know if it was just a hostile misnomer to call her the whore of Babylon, but she was banging a lot of people. Of course, we nowadays we wouldn't slut shame Babylon the Great here. But this is the kind of woman, these are the ones that are being emulated when it comes to the modern woman today. It's, it's people like Lilith and, and <laughs> the whore of Babylon. 
And there's this also idea, and I didn't know this, apparently there are no female demons. Did anybody else know this? Demons are not female. Uh, there's a Jezebel. I know there's a Jezebel in the Bible who did some unsavory things, but I don't think she was a demon. Uh, but this one apparently, or another demon, I, I may have miswrote this, but is a demon who pretends to be a woman, but seeks to undermine authority by using women. So manipulates women to try to undermine the authority on the earth. So when the proper authority of man over woman is disrupted, then there are problems. And that's what leads to a bad society, says the author. And the roles of men and women are actually really important to maintain an established civilization. So the big lie, changing human nature. Uh, the big lie is apparently Marxism. Of course, a lot of people are using this term nowadays. But Marxism is the uh, driver behind a lot of this. So Lenin specifically, and I talked about how we were discussing Lenin in that other book that we're coming up on that's much longer than this one. But Lenin, the things that he implemented, he killed the Tsar's family when he took power. He ended private property. He removed the aristocracy. He instituted labor camps. And there were bread lines, of course, the populace that was supposed to benefit from all these, this revolution, the Russian revolution, uh, the Bolshevik revolution. They ended up in bread lines, had their families destroyed because the, all adults were forced to work. Divorces were made very easy to procure, and religious itself was destroyed. And one thing that Lenin did was try to erase every difference between people, whether it's economic or social, whatever advantages, disadvantages. He specifically tried to erase all those differences, and he made abortions free and legal. And members of this uh, era of Russia, they specifically, like in 1934, abortions actually outweighed live births three to one. So they were having this population crisis because abortions were so prolific. They actually had to change it at some point to encourage reproduction to have more children. But one woman actually admitted to having 80 abortions at the time. Uh, I think she had the high score. But one of the things that always comes up is that feminists say, and this is how these things always work, is that utopia won't work. You know, all of our theories and the way that this all happens, we won't have utopia until everybody adheres to the ideology. So uh, we must make everybody exactly the same. We have to overlook reality that cuts against the ideology. And they say that women are supposed to step out of motherhood to be who they really were. But then once women did that, you end up with women who are still naturally inclined <laughs> to mother others and even generally built for motherhood and, and like the hip structure and the arms. Then we get into, I think this was chapter five or something, where she talks about specific feminists who had a history of abuse and mental illness, of being abused and mental illness and engaging in abuse. But apparently they had a lack of emotional support early on as children, and they had a lot of problems with their parents. They were more likely to be homosexual, but there was one specifically, Kate Millett, whose sister, I can't remember the name of the sister, called Kate Millett, the feminist, disturbed and abusive, said that she d discouraged monogamy and supported all the other feminist tropes. But her sister went to an event, you know, one of these feminist events, and entered a room, and there were a bunch of women around a table on cushions who were all naked, and one at the head of the table was wrapped in a boa constrictor. And they started doing some strange things with the knives that were provided for them on the table. So uh, her and her friend who had attended just fled with uh, no more questions. But a lot of the ideas that are proposed by these these feminists specifically are that men are killers and that the feminists must kill babies to be equal to the prolific killing of men and that men are the enemy and that men start wars. I mean, you can't really argue with that last point there, but... <laughs> 
And there's this return to this idea of the Cosmo girl being anything but a virgin or mother. And there's this reference to a writer of Cosmo who said that it was supposed to be like this Dear Abby thing where letters come in that are asking for advice and they'd respond to those and that's what Cosmo did. But it turned out a lot of these were just made up. They just make up stories of people sending in letters, make up the letters. And it just turned into pure propaganda for the Cosmo girl being anti-virgin, anti-mother. Then we turn to the new matriarchy and how the marketplace of ideas has changed. And it's like fashion where you have these top-down ideas that end up being handed down, you know, all the way through to the bottom. And they just permeate everything. So media and entertainment, you have this idea of sexual license being sold as fun and liberating. And it helped women swallow these difficult ideas. So in universities as well, there's one professor who said that now that there are ultrasounds where you can actually see the baby, that they needed a new strategy to be able to support the idea of abortion. But one of the strategies was to push these really extreme ideas so that people would accept the less extreme versions of those ideas. But there's this whole thing. It was just became this perfect dogma that must be defended. And if it wasn't working out perfectly, all you needed was more sex in government, and that would take care of it. But they're not seeking the truth. It's based on emotional whims. They're not seeking justice. Justice meaning equally applied standards for everyone, equal and transparent standards. But the feminist movement, the author points out, used to be about justice. It was That's what it was about in the beginning. It was about making sure that women wouldn't be beholden to abusive men and be able to enter the workforce and be able to take care of themselves That's if that's what they chose to do. But to try to bring to light all the bad things that men were doing that were abusing this relationship. So it did good things in the beginning. Then we have this uh, Camille Paglia quote, one of my favorite intellectuals, period. Quote, their elevation of emotion and group solidarity over fact and logic has resurrected damaging stereotypes of women's irrationality that were once used to deny us the vote, end quote. So important, such an important idea. It's something I've been thinking about for a long time, ever since we kind of had this, and I saw it early in college. But what happens, they get into the public square, into positions of power, and then they start acting out these female stereotypes. It's, it's hilarious. But we'll talk more about that later. Then remember the future is female. Remember the force is female from Kathleen Kennedy in Star Wars at Disney. The force is female and we have to make everything about Star Wars geared toward elevating females. And then the future is female from the Clinton campaign, implying that patriarchy has devastated life on the planet and that if women ruled the world, there would just be peace and wonder and it would be amazing. Notwithstanding all the fighting amongst women, but you know, leave that aside. But they demand conformity and uniformity and those who rise above must be brought down. You see this especially in education. Obviously, we read that book about by Carl Rogers, who kind of talked about a lot of these ideas that ended up permeating education. But it's this idea of pulling down people who are doing better because you don't want a hierarchy. You don't want people to flourish and do really well. But one group that has not flourished in this particular system is men in general. They don't know their place. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing in this kind of a system. And then the author references actual matriarchies that haven't worked historically. And one man who talked about how it breeds a culture of men that are useless. They become breeders but have no role. Then there's a reference to the Kavanaugh crucible and how that was really about abortion. And remember, there's this storming of the Capitol during the Kavanaugh hearings, but they were just given places to sit to go and watch it. But it was really about abortion was the point. And there's this reference to this woman, Thistle Brown, who's apparently a feminist, who was screaming at her beta, low-testosterone husband about how terrible he was and how he did all these things, you know, and espoused all these feminist ideals, but didn't do all the right things he needed to be doing, and how she hated all men. And so the author asked the question, why don't men fight back, and suggests that they're worried of appearing sexist, 
and that they love women. They're trying to get with women, so they just try any strategy they can to try to get women. How fighting women in general goes against a man's nature, because women are not supposed to be the enemy. You know, other men are supposed to be the enemy, and dragons are supposed to be the enemy, but women are not supposed to be them. And men have their basic instincts satisfied, so you get free sex everywhere, so the basic instinct of getting that satisfaction is being satisfied. So you're in this weird state where you're getting that thing that you're basically supposed to be after, but you're not being fulfilled in a way that you're supposed to be fulfilled. And the sexual revolution just in general led to a proliferation of porn. And we've got sex robots coming down the pike. So with those things, you don't need to have women in a certain way anymore. Then we ask the question, who is Mary? So remember, Mary, the Virgin Mary, is supposed to be the ideal and supposed to be the representation of what women are supposed to be doing. Mary's the truest reflection of God apart from Jesus. It's the most powerful woman in the world. The Hail Mary Pass, I never made this connection, is a reference to her. Many great works of art obviously reference Mary. Mary called terrible as an army, so she has this kind of inquit or this power that she can wield, terrible as an army, but uses it in a particular way. So she's sinless and perfect. She was the first person that was both a virgin and a mother. Now, of course, from my, this is me talking, from my perspective, you see these things in different ways. So you can see it as archetypal, as metaphorical, or as literal. So you can take them how you want to take them. But Mary's approach is different. So Mary herself is obedient, humble, submissive, and meek. And the author acknowledges that this, these virtues smack of the doormat woman and sound crazy to modern ears. But this kind of powers in her stillness. She lives and works and suffers for his vocation and does not command or urge she suggests. And it's in that perfect surrender. That's part of her power, the perfect surrender. And the strength is in her capacity to get out of the way. But importantly, women are not intrinsically weak. They have the ability to destroy society. And all you have to do is look at Eve to see an example of that. But the problem is when the woman seeks self-glorification. And this is a huge, big idea here, is when you lose the faith in God, that you must make yourself God to be able to protect yourself. You know, when you have that faith in God, when you have somebody who's out there who is able and has the power and the interest and the goodness to be able to protect you, then you feel that protection. You feel like you can move forward based on that. But when you don't have that, you have to make yourself more powerful. And that's one thing that might be a cause of this thirsting, grasping for power that people are doing nowadays because they have to get powerful enough to be able to protect themselves because they don't have that blanket anymore. So then we go into talking about kind of fertility in general. There were these successful women that they were talking to and how they were successful, but something was very much missing at this point of their lives despite it. And the author says that fertility is not something from which women can run. A woman multiplies and enlarges what is given to her. This is this is her role. Uh, Cicero talked about the cultura anima, the cultivating of the soul. And a woman is a measure of civilization in a society. So where women go wrong, men will follow them because men just follow women. So if just like Eve, you know, Eve trying to be fruitful but doing so in the wrong way will lead to civilizational problems. So culture in general has us confused about what is fulfilling. And the author suggests that you must be open to God. That's the point. That's the way that you find that kind of fulfillment. And that for women, holiness and fruitfulness are related directly to fertility. And suggests a woman, if you want to change the world, you have to go home and change your family. And it's through mediation of women that men are given to society. So we have to go through that to get to society. And the power doesn't come from them, but through them. They are the conduit of that power and can wield it in different ways. So then there's a discussion about what beauty is, and specifically Mary's beauty. There's a reference to Dostoevsky talking about how beauty will save the world. Save the cheerleader, save the world. <laughs> 
but the beauty is in the woman's soul. And nowadays it's used to gain something. It's bartered, cheaply bartered for something from a man or something. Whereas it should be that one is loved for goodness and loyalty as opposed to some kind of cheap imitation of what beauty is. And this is something psychological, and this is me talking again, <laughs> psychologically this is something that I've kind of experienced recently is that there was somebody who I found, you know, absolutely beautiful, just the peak of beauty. And over time, as she started exhibiting more kind of selfish tendencies, because before it was more defensive. Like, if she acted selfishly, she was being defensive. It wasn't that she was actually selfish or anything like that. So I always saw her as still just the paragon of beauty. But then when she started seeming to act like genuinely selfish, that physically she didn't seem as attractive anymore. And of course, this could be some kind of biological, psychological loop here that is just suggesting to me that it's it's not a good idea <laughs> to go after that type of person. But when you're trying to define beauty archetypically or psychologically or biologically, Logically, it does seem like it's a more profound, foundational kind of a thing as opposed to that superficial, generic thing. You know, somebody could be just become more beautiful to you as you get to experience them or as they become better people. But okay, getting off that train. <laughs> so songs have not been written for nagging, angry, self-absorbed women. Keep that in mind. But women should be embracing the lives of others. They allow people to live in them and then try to serve their needs. Okay, so imitating Mary specifically. Mary, when she was at the cross, she was there were two other Marys. And the author takes this to mean that, that Mary is all of us. You know, all of us standing at that cross looking up at what's going on there. And that we must understand her virtues specifically. The author got married, you know, later. I think she was like 33 when she got married and had children. But she looks for, she looked for at the time what classically great women were like and found these virtues of humility and purity and love of God and not being a victim, not saying that you're a victim. So the ways to combat a little action here, ways to combat the anti-Mary is to become a spiritual adult. And this is something that Jordan Peterson actually talks about to men. You know, Jordan Peterson tells men to grow up, get your own house in order. This author specifically tells women, stop complaining, stop whining, and stop blaming others. And you have to put on your oxygen mask first <laughs> before you put it on the child. All of us need someone who perfectly and unconditionally cares about us. You have to be on guard about what children are watching. You have to get rid of all bitterness and malice. You have to exhibit kindness and tenderness. And remember that small kindness can go a long way with a person. I think that's something all of us really need to take to heart. And the final chapter talks about how we're all surrounded by the walking wounded women and that we must not abandon them. That's not the point, is to abandon people who are in the state. And she references a movie I absolutely hate. It's a terrible, terrible movie, but it is kind of a modern parable. That's Moana, Disney's Moana. So in the movie Moana, she is, of course, the heir to like the aristocracy. She's supposed to take over the island, but the island is dying. They're not able to get the food that they need, and they don't know why. So Moana has to go out and and figure out what's going on. And she encounters, she's given the heart of the sea by the water uh, because she does not have her own agency or ability because it's a horribly written story. But I digress. So um, she's given this heart of the ocean and she's got to go out and figure out what's going on here. And she runs into the lava monster. The lava monster's all thrashing and terrible and mean. But she learns that there's a, you know, the heart of the sea shaped hole in this lava monster. And when she puts it in the lava monster, then the lava monster turns into the green fur goddess of life. So really, it was just a heartless go goddess of life that was thrashing about. And once she got that, then she turned, became fertile, you know, the fertile woman who was able to provide all the food to the, to the island and the rest of the, you know, humanity and all that stuff. So 
there's this kind of really conservative um, parable built into this this movie. So what the author is trying to say here is that radical feminism isn't who women really are, and striving to be like men isn't who women really are, and being consumed by rage and anxiety and malice, it's not who women really are. And finally, living as if there's no God is not who women really are. So taking all those things and reincorporating them into women and emulating the example of Mary, those are the things that women need to do. And then there's an appendix of prayers to combat the anti-Mary, so you can take those as necessary. Okay, so that's the end of the contents. We're moving into the analysis now. So there are a lot of broad claims made here, so you have to be skeptical of the empirical assertions, of course. The big general claims here are that there is a conscious or unconscious conspiracy to undermine the family by encouraging women to be promiscuous, love abortion, support homosexuality, and hate men. While there's a lot of this that certainly dovetails with everything that we see now when it comes to how women are acting and how the theorizing is going in the United States and Western world in general, it's still an empirical claim. You know, who are the conspirators? Was there a board meeting? Who implements the strategy? And on Friday, we'll actually, or Saturday, we'll actually talk about an article that will complement this idea about shady, broad cabals that are trying to undermine Western civilization. But in this, in this particular book, there's a lot of religious talk, which is, you know, mostly unverifiable, obviously. However, like I said, it could be metaphorical, could be archetypal, could be an attempt to provide just a value framework and not be making any empirical claims. However sticky that idea, the noma, the non-overlapping magisteria claim, however sticky that is, which I, of course, attacked early in my career here. But having said all that, so much in this book just seems terrifyingly on point. <laughs> I think I saw that qu that quote from Camille Paglia when I saw them in an interview with Jordan Peterson. I think that's where they said it. But this book really kind of expands that sentiment. And that's an important thing to keep in mind right now. That idea that the stereotypes about women are the things that are being amplified now. Just broad writ onto all of society. And it's amazing. I mean, even when I was just reading the description of what Mary needed to be, we are so far from the woman as Mary. It's incredible now, just as a society, as a culture. It's anxiety-inducing even to think about telling a woman it's better to be meek and quiet and pure and cherish their fertility and desire to be a mother that that's something that should be important to them, a desire to be a mother or to be motherly to people. Like, they would go insane nowadays. Uh, they would just be like the lava monster. They would thrash about and swipe at you and all sorts of other things if you tried to tell them that's what they should be. But uh, when it comes to, I mean, we didn't just get plucked out and dropped, and this is probably moving into big picture stuff. We didn't just get plucked out and dropped. There's a kind of religious fervor to it, obviously. We have a biological precursor that goes back millions of years that has worked in a particular way. It's absolutely ridiculous to say or to suggest or think that none of that has an impact on what we are today and psychologically what's going to be healthy and unhealthy. So the idea, like, say, of having a desire to be a mother, you know, just that in general, to merely suggest that that is just completely wrong and it's just been inculcated by an evil patriarchy and all that stuff is complete nonsense. 
But it, it seems, it absolutely seems like women got into power and more authoritative positions in society and then started acting out these feminine stereotypes of being more motherly. They just do it in a really bad way. <laughs> Demanding a society that cares more for its downtrodden and its citizens. So just exhibiting that caring and more governmental programs to help people. Companies that pay more in general rather than being, you know, cutthroat, just looking for profits and being efficient. Bringing down those who are elevated, just like in education especially bring instead of amplifying the people who are doing really well bringing them down to a level so you don't hurt the feelings of other people but in the, we've seen we've seen this kind of cancerous degradation of cultural hallmarks like competition individualism these heroic virtues the self-sacrifice the fighting for the truth all those things and they're not just losing importance in our culture they're being demonized as evil and patriarchal and white supremacist so overall, I mean, a totally fun book to read. You went from kind of basic notions that were attacking the way that women are being treated and this cultural degradation. You went from that to like witchcraft and, and you went into fashion and talked about fashion. There's, there's a lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff in the book. It was a lot of fun to read. And like I said, there are empirical claims that you would certainly have to do a deep dive into. And there's kind of this backbone of just religious intellectual authoritarianism that's just saying that, well, here's my religion and it's obviously right. So let's go with that. But at this point in our history, in Western civilization history at this point, I am perfectly fine to give a whole bunch of latitude to any religious person who wants to talk about their certainty, uh, especially given what has come in the power vacuum once we lost religion. So anyway... <laughs> Next book, the next things that we're doing, we are actually going to do, because Jordan Peterson has a new book coming out. It's coming out next week. Uh, so we're going to do 12 Rules for Life next week on Tuesday. We'll do his book that's coming out soon after that. But I wanted to mix it up with, uh, there's going to be Propaganda by Edward Bernays is going to be coming up. I think it's really important at this point. We're also going to read that one that's like the Bible for leftist dissidents, leftist revolutionaries that is apparently being followed to a T. So we're going to read that one coming up pretty soon too. But Propaganda. Propaganda is going to come up first. Then we'll finally finish Modern Times and, and have a discussion about that. That one might take a couple of episodes, but we'll have that one after that. So 12 Rules for Life coming up by Jordan Peterson next should be the next one, the very next one. But we'll have a discussion about this book on Thursday, so a couple of days from now. And then we'll have The 30 Tyrants uh, probably coming out Saturday. In extremely important article. I'm telling you so many important things in that article that explains virtually everything about where America is and how it's situated and what happened with the election, what's going on with Joe Biden. Uh, I mean, uh, pretty much all explained by this article. So we're going to go through that one in detail. But otherwise, oh my gosh, I hope everything's great. This was The Coffee House. I will definitely see you on the next one. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Right,